Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at our Wyoming weather. And it has been definitely hot out there, but it looks like a change is coming. Also, we'll take a look at some other happenings. Football season's right around the corner. Volleyball, all those great things coming up in the fall. Also, we'll take a look at the Nez Perce Indians and the trail that was dedicated in their honor. And finally, we'll talk about a young lady and two jealous cowboys. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here on the first day of August. Yes, we're into August. Thank goodness that we got rid of uh, the month of July. Going in here, we're looking like we're going to have a little bit of a weather change. Of course, last week was just brutal but uh, as far as temperatures, but we're starting to get some fronts move in overnight. It blew most of the night. Weather is kind of moderated a little bit. I think we're still going to get hot later today. And then I see later in the week, I see some pretty nice temperatures. We're getting some temperatures. We're also looking at some rain and getting down in the 70s for the high over the weekend. So that is a plus right now. Now, with the weather getting warmer and such, you know, we had talked in the previous podcast about here in Thermopolis, the Bighorn River goes through, starts out at Boyson, goes to the Wind River Canyon, through the town of Thermopolis, and heads north. And big floating country. In our last two Fourth of July events, we've had high water where we couldn't get anybody out on the river. Now the river is finally down to normal summer flow. Floaters and fishermen have just really picked up. See people out there floating all day long now. So we're back to that summer type weather. And of course, it kind of shortened the float season as we're just right around the corner here from our school getting started. But weather looks like it's good. I uh, talked to my daughter who lives in Arizona. They've had some extreme weather down there as far as winds and storms coming through, some monsoonal weather that they seem to get down there. It's amazing with those temperatures. So that's going to help them with a little bit of moderation. But again, we're into the month of August. We'll get through this. Everything is heading in the right direction. And as we always say, we know what's coming right around after our summer is our fall. And here comes Wyoming winter. Taking a look at happenings around the state of Wyoming here on the last day of July. Thank goodness it is the last day of July. It's just been a long, long month, but of course it's 31 days long, so it would be long. With August upon us, we start to start thinking about school will be back in session here really pretty quick. In a couple weeks, teachers will start getting back in the classrooms in that period of time. Kids will start getting ready to go back to school. One other thing that always like here in Wyoming is back to high school sports. The football teams will be starting practices here in a couple weeks, getting ready for their opening zero-week games at the end of the month. Also, volleyball is on tap uh, cross-country for the runners and uh, also some golf taking place. So it's a busy time of the year. University of Wyoming will be back uh, in session. Also, the Cowboys will be ready to start playing. Interesting year for the Cowboys. Coach Bowl is getting up there in years, and people had asked about how many years he'll stay in the program, how many years he plans on coaching. That is an interesting question. So a lot of things up in front of us right now, and I always look forward to college football. 
season will be starting here pretty quick. Follow quite a few teams besides the Cowboys. The main team I follow is the Oklahoma Sooners. Having lived in Oklahoma for a period of years and just like the Sooners. So always follow them. And the Cowboys are my two college teams I like to follow. But I just like the college football. Of course, there's plenty of it on TV. The other thing that I really enjoy anymore that I didn't watch as much or even didn't have an interest for it was uh, women's volleyball. High school, uh, collegiate is just uh, outstanding, the play at the collegiate level. And they're getting more and more of that is coming out on the TV. So that's a big plus. It's just really fun to watch. So those are my other sports. So all that stuff is upon us. And I think a lot of people are starting to wind down. We're in those dog days of summer. It looks like up ahead, we look like we've got some, a little change but in the weather. But other things happening around the area. I saw recently, about a week ago, there was a grizzly bear attack. A lady was killed up at the outside the park by West Yellowstone. For people that are out hiking around, you know, the bears are out and about. you got to be on top of your game, especially if you're walking by yourself. It is helpful if you can walk with somebody and both people have bear spray. But the cubs are out, that mama bear. If you startle them, she's going to react and protect that little baby. That's what happened to this lady. I don't think she really even knew that she provoked it just in the wrong spot at the wrong time. So it's always something to be aware of here in our state of Wyoming. Other news here in the local area, Washke County, where Worland is at, there's been a missing young lady. Brianna Mitchell, she went missing over a week ago, 27 years of age, found her car outside of town, out past the airport on a dirt road, uh, that area. A lot of people do go out that way, but um, her car was found and no sign of this young lady. So they've had um, searches. They've started taking a pretty close look at what could have happened to her? The FBI has been involved. A lot of different groups are out searching and just no trace of her. So my thoughts and prayers go out to her family and friends. I just hope that the young lady is found well somewhere. And I pray that uh, Brianna can be found safe and return to her family. Kind of an update on our dog situation here at my house. We did get that Doberman pup. Mio is her name. She is getting bigger by the day. Of course, the Dobermans, if you've ever been around them, their legs grow like crazy. Now she wants to be a counter, get up on the counter and sweep the counter. So now we're back to making sure there's nothing within reach because those long legs go everywhere. Just amazing the ability she has. But uh, she's doing well. Still looking for that other German Shepherd. I've looked at different places, had looked all over the place. It's just kind of rather interesting trying to find the right fit for us. And all the meanwhile, our old pug, Zoe, she had a seizure overnight, which was not very good. So had to deal with that. And so we'll keep an eye on her. We've got a vet appointment later in the week to get her checked out. But it's just always something. But that's part of owning animals that you deal with. So we continue on. But again, our weather is looking like it's going to change a little bit, and that's going to be a relief. I did see an updated forecast today here on the 1st of August as I update the, the podcast. looks like we're going to get some cooler weather, some rain coming in. So that's a good sound of relief. But again, I'll go back to my 
farmer relatives. Barley harvest is just getting started. Everybody got out yesterday starting in the barley. And so this rain and weather will play a little bit of havoc with them. So it's just one thing after another in the world with everybody involved with this, um, especially in agriculture. It can never be just right. It seems like something always comes up, but I guess it's part of the business and everybody's used to it. So with the new equipment, they can get through the barley fields pretty quick. But uh, again, barley harvest, weather is going to change. Welcome to the world of agriculture and farming here in the state of Wyoming and across the U.S. Today we want to look at the Nez Perce National Historic Trail. And it's an interesting story about the Nez Perce. The Nez Perce National Historical Trail follows the route taken by a large band of Nez Perce Indian tribe in 1877 when they attempted to flee from the U.S. Calvary and get to Canada to avoid being forced onto a reservation. The 1,170-mile trail makes its way through Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, commemorating the significant sites and events during their 126-day journey. The Nez Perce Trail was, was created in 1986 as part of the National Trail Systems Act and is managed by the U.S. Forest Service. It stretches from Wallowa Lake, Oregon, to Bear Paw Battlefield near Chinook, Montana, connecting 38 sites across those four states that are part of the National Parks Service's Nez Perce National Historical Park. Since aiding the Lewis and Clark Expedition in 1805, white explorers and settlers knew the Nez Perce Indians as friends. The Nez Perce lived in bands, welcoming traders and missionaries to a land framed by rivers, mountains, prairies, and valleys of present-day southeastern Washington, northeastern Oregon, and north-central Idaho. They moved throughout the region, including a part of what are now Montana and Wyoming, to fish, hunt, and trade. After Great Britain and the United States settled a long-running disagreement over settlement and the control of what was known then as the Oregon country, in 1846, American settlers began moving westward on the Oregon Trail in great numbers. The creating of the Oregon Territory in 1848 and Washington in 1853 triggered the treaty process. Fifty years after the Lewis and Clark came through, Washington Territorial Governor Isaac Ingalls Stevens met in council with the Nez Perce leaders, which resulted in the 1855 Treaty of Walla Walla with the U.S. government. In this treaty, the Nez Perce agreed to cede 7.5 million acres of tribal land while retaining the right to hunt and fish in their usual and accustomed places, including some 5,000 square miles in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. This area was set aside as Nez Perce Reservation, guaranteeing the tribe's right to their ancestral homeland. The Treaty of 1855 was ratified by the U.S. Senate in 1859. However, in 1860, encroaching prospectors struck gold in Idaho, and within no time, thousands of miners, merchants, and settlers overran Nez Perce land. In 1863, the federal government responded with a new treaty talks wanting to renegotiate the treaty and shrink the reservation to approximately one-tenth its original size, which included their treasured Wallowa region of northeastern Oregon and the Peyote Lake region. Many chiefs refused and angrily departed. 
Amid uncertainty, pressure, and promises, the reigning chiefs reluctantly agreed to a reservation 90% smaller than the 1855 treaty. Without authority, they ceded the lands of Nairsperis, who left the council in a document called the Thief Treaty. The white negotiators and the federal government distinguished those who signed as the treaty as Nesperis, those who were not, were non-treaty. In 1863, treaty was ratified by Congress in 1867. For some years, non-treaty Nesperis lived in the Wallawas and other locations within their traditional homelands. But the conflict with newcomers increased, particularly in the Wallawa region the home of Chief Joseph and his band. Settlers petitioned the government to relocate the Nez Perce to the reduced 1863 treaty reservation in Idaho. In 1877, the U.S. Army was commanded to do so. In May of 1877, General Oliver Otis Howard and the non-treaty Nez Perce chiefs held a council at Fort Lapawa in Lapawa, Idaho. Howard summarily ordered them to bring their families and livestock in and within 30 days, or the army would make them comply by force. The chiefs argued the time was inadequate to gather the people and their livestock and ask for an extension, which Howard refused. Years of high-handedness, mistreatment, and the prospect of losing their homelands provoked several young warriors to vengeance. Riding from camp to Tolo Lake, Idaho, they avenged past murders of relatives by killing some white settlers. Forced to abandon hopes for a peaceful move to the Lapua Reservation, the Nez Perce chiefs saw a flight to Canada as their last promise for peace. The flight of the Nez Perce began on June 15, 1877, led by Chief Joseph, Looking Glass, White Birds, Okahot, and Lean Elk, and others, 800 men and women and children, moved northeast, hoping to seek safety with their Crow allies. Only 250 were warriors. The rest were women, children, and elderly, and sick. On June 17th, the U.S. Army and volunteer soldiers approached a Nez Perce camp on the Whitebird Creek in western Idaho. When a party of six warriors bearing a flag of truce approached the soldiers, one of the volunteers fired at them, thus precipitating the Nez Perce War of 1877. After defeating the cavalry forces at the Battle of White Bird Canyon, the flight intensified, and more than a dozen more battles and skirmishes would be fought in the next several months. Fighting the army all along the trail, the number of Nez Perce was severely reduced. Just 40 miles from Canada, they were trapped at Snake Creek and at the base of the Bear Paw Mountains in Montana by the U.S. Army. After a five-day fight, the remaining 431 members of the tribe were beaten, and Chief Joseph surrendered on October 5th of 1877 with a speech that became famous. I'm tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. Looking Glass is dead. Tulhuso is dead. The old men are all dead. It is the young men who say yes or no. He who led the young man is dead. It's cold, and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them have run away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how I may find them. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs, I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. 
After the surrender, about 200 to 300 Nez Perce managed to avoid the army pickets and cross into Canada, while the remaining survivors were sent to Indian Territory in present-day Oklahoma. Today's descendants of the non-treaty bands live among these three groups, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation in Washington, the Confederated Tribes of the Altamalaya Indian Reservation in Oregon, and the Nez Perce Tribe in Idaho. General William Tecumseh Sherman called the Nez Perce Saga the most extraordinary of the Indian Wars. Today, the route is designated by the Nez Perce National Historical Trail by an act of Congress. With the cooperation of state highway departments and county commissioners in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, over 1,500 miles of federal, state, and county roads have been designated the Nez Perce National Historical Trail Auto Route. The route roughly parallels the course traveled by the Nez Perce bands during the historical 1877 flight. The trail starts at Wallawa Lake, Oregon, then heads northeast and crosses the Snake River at Doug Bar. It enters Idaho at Lewiston and cuts across north-central Idaho, entering Montana near Lolo Pass. It then travels along the Bitterroot Valley, after which it re-enters Idaho at Bannock Pass and travels east back into Montana at Targety Pass to cross the Continental Divide. It bisects Yellowstone National Park and follows the Clark Fork of the Yellowstone River out of Wyoming into Montana. The trailhead north through the Bear Paws Mountain ending 40 miles from the Canadian border south of Chinook, Montana. And it's and rather interesting, the happenings of the Nez Perce and what they did. And, and I was actually, myself, my wife and family, we were up in the Bear Paws Mountain in northern Montana, south of Chinook, just uh, north of, at the time, uh, Cleveland, Montana, a little town out there in the Bear Paws on the base of the Bear Paws. And we went by the morning they were doing the, the dedication for the battlefield. And we were able to take in the ceremony. They had the some Nez Perce elders were there, and they actually dedicated it with some representatives from the state of Montana. And just a somber place and just another part of our history. And finally today from wildhistory.org, The Murder of Allie Means. This was by Justin Horn. Allie Means shot, blurred the front page headline of Gillette News. Understandably, the August 26, 1905 murder threw small-town Gillette, Wyoming into a great state of excitement. In his early 20s, Sam Allison Allie Means' murder sparked a chain of events impacting Wyoming for years to come. The cause of Means' murder? A young woman. Allie Means and Noah T. Richardson both hailed from San Antonio, Texas area. They work had brought each of them north. Means found work in April 1905 as a night wrangler for the Cross Ranch on the Little Powder River headquarters, 25 miles north of Gillette. Richardson worked as a cowboy at the T7 Ranch, 20 miles south of Gillette. At the time of his death, in August of 1905, Newspapers reported that Means was well-liked by everyone, except perhaps Noah Richardson. On the fateful day of his shooting, the cowboys from the Cross Ranch owned by the Biddle Cattle Company were gathered just outside of Gillette. Richardson met up with the cowboys and brought along a girl named Frances Williams. Women were considered a rare commodity in the small cattle town of northeast Wyoming, 
and it is not surprising Frances found herself to be quite popular. While socializing, Frances hit it off with Means, which caused tensions. Means and Richardson quarreled throughout the day, and the other cowboys had to break them up. When she was ready to leave, Frances asked Means, not Richardson, to take her back to town. This infuriated Richardson. As Means took Frances back to Gillette, Richardson followed and caught up to them close to town. The two men exchanged sharp words, the newspaper reported. Then Richardson fired four shots at Means, three of which hit Means. What happened to Francis Williams at this point in the story is unclear. But being close to Gillette, Means was able to spur his horse onward and escape Richardson. Means made it to Montgomery Buffalo Hump Saloon in Gillette, where he fell onto a table calling for a doctor. Richardson, following Means, made his way across the street and into the neighboring Dodd House and Saloon. Deputy Sheriff Lou Janine arrested Richardson and transported him to the county jail in Sundance. Gillette was a fledgling town in Crook County with less than 200 residents. Campbell County wouldn't be established with Gillette as its county seat until 1911. Allie Means was taken to Dr. N.H. Baker's office in Gillette where the doctor dressed his wounds. Means' injuries were severe, and he was transported by railroad to Sheridan for a more advanced medical treatment. Residents of Gillette, along with Means Ranch co-workers, raised $165, equivalent of $5,500 here in 2023, for his medical treatment. Despite the generosity of Gillette and the best efforts of Sheridan doctors, Means passed away from his wounds after two days and died on August 28, 1905. He was only 24 years old. Word of Ali Means' murder reached his family in Texas. According to Gillette News, B.B. Means of San Antonio, Texas, brother of Allie Means, is here looking for the prosecution of the defendant. Another brother, Monty Means, traveled to Wyoming as well. Monty must have become smitten with the northeast Wyoming because he remained in Gillette. During the Great War in 1917, Monty was drafted out of Gillette to serve in the Army. After the war, Monty returned to Gillette, married Mildred Sanborn, in 1921 and lived in Gillette until his death in 1974. In late 1905, Richardson faced trial in Sundance. Francis Williams was paid $20 by Crook County to act as a witness in the trial. The jury convicted him of first-degree premeditated murder, a sentence carrying the death penalty by hanging. Naturally, Richardson attempted to appeal the case to the Supreme Court of Wyoming. It was discovered that all the records in the case were lost, having mysteriously disappeared. Whether records were genuinely lost or whether Richardson had inside help remains unclear. The clerical error resulted in a new trial for Richardson. In his second trial, the court found Richardson had suffered from a brainstorm, presumably about a mental illness at the time of the murder. His conviction was reduced to second-degree manslaughter and his sentence reduced to life in prison, for which Richardson was overjoyed. To serve out his life sentence, Richardson was shipped to the Wyoming State Penitentiary in Rawlins. Prisoners there worked in a broom factory and after 1911 on road projects in the state. Overcrowded conditions and changes in leadership caused an outbreak of violence in 1911. When prisoners set fire to the broom factory in July, newspapers believed that the event was the climax to a series of mishaps. But the conditions continued to worsen. Violence broke out again in October of 1912 when inmates lynched a black man, Frank Wigfall, who was accused of rape. With officials focusing on investigating Wigfall's death, 
Burt Dalton, a member of the Whitney Gang, serving a 20-year sentence, led a prison break on October 12th with other men through the penitentiary fence. The next day, while Warden Felix Alston led a posse of prison guards to track Dalton, Richardson and seven other inmates overpowered another guard, John M. Neal, and took his keys. They then stole some of the prison's firearms and made their escape. The armed men fled through Rollins, ducking into alleyways and cutting through yards. Crossing through Charles Stessner's yard, the men caught the attention of Stessner's wife, who aroused her husband to grab his gun and head off the convicts. Meeting the men in the street, Stressner raised his guns at the inmates. Without hesitation, Richardson fired his weapon. The shot hit Stessner in the head, killing him instantly. The convicts splintered into small groups and fled to the train tracks south of town. A posse of prison guards killed one of the men and caught another hiding under a rail car, returning him to the penitentiary by automobile. Having now committed the second murders of life, Richardson and two other convicts, Ernest Backstrom and J.H. Burke, made their way south from Rollins. The posse followed the trail for two weeks. Burke had been wounded in the escape and must have been slowing them down when the posse found his body. The deputies found Richardson and Backstrom had turned on Burke and murdered him. The convicts were in a sheep wagon at Powder Wash outside of Bags near the Colorado border about 70 miles south of Rollins, where the posse caught up with them. Richardson, who had reportedly declared after the escape that he would rather be dead and in hell than back in the pen, stepped boldly from the wagon and stood up in plain view of the pursuers while firing between 20 and 30 shots at them before he was killed. The Northern Wyoming Daily Herald reported Backstrom was found dead inside the wagon. The murder of Means by Richardson led to the Means brothers, Monty Means, moving to Gillette and serving in the Army in World War I and raising his family in Gillette. The reduction in Richardson's life set in imprisonment, he was at the penitentiary during the 1912 break, resulting in Richardson's murder of Charles Stessner. Today, the visitors to Campbell County's Rockpile Museum can see Ali Means' saddle on display. It's the very saddle he rode the day he attempted to escort Francis Williams home and murdered by Noah Richardson. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.